Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, good morning, Journey Church. And I want to just say thank you to the worship team, Holly, Joel, Beth, and uh, Sean, and um, Payne. Uh, Weathers, it's so good to see you. Uh, we've been in contact, Andy and I, and it's so good to have you with us for a couple days. And, uh, you know, the scripture talks about anyone who gives a cold cup to a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And so, uh, Weathers, hopefully we've given you a cold cup of water. And the, the fruit that you bear in Togo is put on our account as well. Because that's called proliferation, that the gospel, we need to be faithful with this community but we have an opportunity to shine far beyond this community, and that's one of those ways to do that. So, love you guys, as well as many other missionaries and ministries we support, but so good to have you here this morning. Well, we're in a season, and, and people, people were, were to ask me, hey, what's our vision for the year? Well, our vision for the year right now is uh, opening the hood of the car and looking underneath the hood and saying, how healthy is the engine? What, what is there in there that we need to fix, repair, or replace? Because we've been through a lot of storms, a lot of seasons, uh, highs and lows, those kinds of things. And there are times when we need to hit pause and go, where do we find ourselves on the map? Where do we find ourselves on God's map? This is an area of research that we call church health. It's throughout the New Testament. It's what I got my doctorate in. And um, it's the story that we're living in, the reason why we're actually looking at uh, the seven churches out of Revelation. Those are just amazing church health progress reports there's nothing more clear in god's word in the new testament i mean we have the template in the gospels we have dysfunction and letters written to dysfunctional churches but then to get seven in a row rapid fire in revelation two through three of seven kinds of churches seven churches that really existed uh some see seven church ages in these letters and there's some some uh, validity to that way of seeing these. There's no reason why they're not all true all at the same time. But these seven letters to these seven churches, and to hold those up as a mirror and say, Journey Church, where are we at? One of the reasons why we wanted to do these uh, seven letters is because we want us to think biblically as a congregation as we go into the season of self-assessment. And so I described 14 months ago, I designed a, a tool with the elders and the staff, and it's one of the biggest projects I've done here at the church, for the church, uh, one of the longest running projects, but 21 church health measures that you've now taken, 96 of you actually took that church health survey, and next week is the report. Next week, um, it's not, it does not rise to the level of scripture, frankly, if we could get a letter number eight to journey church from jesus i'd hit delete on the survey your opinion would not matter if we could get it directly from jesus but since we can't get it from jesus directly uh we can get it uh quaker style i could explain more maybe next week what that means but but listening to the church and uh let me just tell you off the bat it's a very encouraging report and I'll show you some of the data and graphs next week and, and um, hopefully get some clarity on what might the Lord say to us. This morning, though, let me just mention uh, 
uh, a section that we've put in at the last minute called anonymous feedback. And I'm just going to say this about the anonymous feedback. We got 36 comments. 90% of them, I would say, were just really helpful insights. If we could, if we could do this, we should do this. Something's extremely encouraging. And then about 10% designed, perhaps by the Lord himself, to make sure I remember that I have not arrived. About 10%. Yeah, and um, so this week was a week of sitting quietly with Jesus in the elder board, phenomenal elder meeting Tuesday night, and with some trusted friends, just listening to the Lord. What in these uh, comments do I need to hear, if nothing else, just to remember, dude, you have not arrived. You see, these things, um, you might call them criticism, um, unsolicited feedback, but it was solicited. But I'll tell you that these things are good to hear, even if the person saying them might have said them better or worse. And the reason why it's good, you go, why is that good? Why are you like, you know, what if I got discouraged and I didn't have their usual energy? What if it like really knocked me back, but I say it's good? It's good to hear these things, even if, there, if some of it was intended to hurt. Why is that good? And here's why it's good. And I want you to understand this for your life as well, that the only thing more hazardous to human beings, to even Christians, than too much criticism, failure, and weakness, the only thing more hazardous to more uh, negative, then the negativity is too much applause, success, and power. You follow? The only thing more hazardous than too much kindness and encouragement, or, or reverse that, too much criticism is too much applause. You believe that? Too much positivity too much of the time, too much encouragement over time can lead us to places we didn't want to go. The only thing more hazardous than too much criticism, failure, and weakness is too much applause, success, and power. See, in this lifetime, in this world, while we long for and work toward excellence and success and, and significance and influence is not a bad thing in and of itself, but in this lifetime, we simply cannot hold too much of it without it negatively impacting us. Do you believe that? Because it's very scriptural. I, I would just say Western Christians have a very weak theology of, of weakness itself. Uh, the Apostle Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians, and just, just hear me out here. Um, Paul was given some revelation of things that no human was allowed to see, such that if he just had these revelations, they would go to his head and he would become conceited. And so he talks about a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, something that really hurt and bothered him, some kind of weakness, brokenness, deficiency, Maybe temptation. We don't know what it is. 
But Paul actually begged God to take it away because it was so painful. And God said no. And he said this to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says about himself, I will boast. If God says that, okay, I'm good. I will boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content. And then look at the list of of the kind of negativity and criticism and weakness that he puts up there. Weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. And so what do we take away from this and where are we heading? It's been in the, in the worship songs so far. It's been in the scripture reading that, that too much strength and power and success is not good for us. And in fact, the opposite, weakness, insult, hardships, persecution, and calamities is good for us if we will accept it. It tempers us. It, it keeps us humble and dependent on the true source of our power. Whereas too much strength, influence, and applause can actually ruin us. Now listen, in the same way that too much success can ruin individual leaders, pastors, Christians in general, too much strength and power and success can ruin entire congregations we've been attempting to answer this question what is a healthy church not my preference or yours but what does jesus say it's fascinating at this point we're looking at church number seven and we can see this in hindsight now that the weak struggling persecuted churches that look impoverished actually fare far better in the eyes of jesus on their report card than the powerful, large, wealthy, influential churches. I didn't make that up. I'm just saying it's in the text. That's how this thing unfolds. And as if, as if to anchor this idea, we have church number seven, the most wealthy of all the churches, is in the greatest of spiritual danger. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, you're going to see the words either in your bulletin, in the print, on the notes, or up on the screen. Look anywhere you want or close your eyes and just listen to God's word. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This is what Jesus says to this final church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the uh, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the church at Laodicea. Where is Laodicea? You see a map come up here. It's located 90 miles east of Ephesus, the first church we looked at. It's almost like radial spokes. We think that Ephesus was the church planting home, and the missionaries went out from Ephesus to these other six churches. So that's where we mark it. It's, it's east of Ephesus. But we also see that here in the Lycus River Valley, it's a part of uh, two other cities, making it the tri-city kind of uh, um, metropolitan area. The other two cities that are clustered there are Colossae and Hierapolis. Laodicea was the wealthiest of the three cities, according to history. They had three things going for them. One was a thriving banking industry. Remember that, because it's written all over this letter, reflected in this letter. Fabric and fabric dyeing industry. Famous black wool production here in Laodicea, as well as an important medical school that was a school of ophthalmology. The city itself was severely damaged in an earthquake in 60 AD. That's just two or three years before the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossae. One of the, one of the three cities right here. Major earthquake literally leveled or laid waste to Laodicea. And according to Emperor Tacitus, who was an emperor in the 3rd century, a couple, couple hundred, hundred years, 150 years after this letter, um, the Emperor Tacitus, knowing the history of his, his empire, said that the citizens were so wealthy in Laodicea that they rejected imperial aid from Rome in order to rebuild their city. They were so wealthy that they built back better even without federal disaster aid. That's how wealthy Laodicea was. The city was independent, self-sufficient, and proud of it. So that's the city of Laodicea. What about the church? What can we know about the church at Laodicea. Well, this is fascinating because in 62 to 64 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to one of the neighboring townships of Colossae. And when we read the, the letter of Colossians, we actually have several references to Laodicea so closely related in a line. We see it first in Colossians chapter, chapter uh, 1 verse 2 or 2 verse 1. I don't remember there exactly, but says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, church at Colossae, and for those at Laodicea. So he's lumping them together. And then at, at the, in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Colossian church, he says this. He talks about Epaphras, uh, one of his, his team members. Epaphras worked really hard for you, loves you, prays fervently for you. So that you could be mature, saying to the church, the church at Colossae. But then he also says, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, Colossian church. And then watch this. And for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, the tri-city, uh, you know, met metropolitan collection right here. So he's lumping them in. 
to his letter to the Colossian church. And then he goes on in verse 15 of chapter 4. For my, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea. You're so close. They're only nine miles away upriver or downriver. And so, hey, you guys have a lot of interaction. The churches get together, the towns get together, and, and say hi to the Laodiceans for me. And then he adds this. See that you also um, read the letter, this letter, Colossians. Make sure it's read at the church of the Laodiceans. So the Laodiceans were very familiar with the book of Colossians. And then this is enigmatic. We go, what, what, what's this? Why is it not in the Bible? Um, see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so perhaps Paul wrote another letter that was, didn't rise to the level of Scripture. It gets lost. And uh, it doesn't belong in our New Testament because it, it, it wasn't of the same quality of, of, of the book of Colossians. Right? Okay, but, but Paul is so concerned that he's also writing to the church at Laodicea. And he wants both letters to cross paths and be read to both churches. And then finally, he says in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 4, Say to Archippus, we only hear that name in the New Testament book of Philemon and here in Colossians chapter 4. But say to Archippus this phrase, Hey, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord or in the Lord. And so they're supposed to encourage this guy, Archippus. And when we put this together with all the data in the New Testament and church history, here's what we discover. Best guess is this. Epaphras planted the church at Laodicea. Paul was deeply concerned for them and loved them. And we find out in church history that Archippus led them as their bishop. He has been martyred by the year 95 when Jesus writes this letter. But understand and know that many gifted church planters and an apostle and a pastor have poured time and energy into this church. And yet here they are just over 30 years later, and Jesus doesn't have a single good thing to say about them. Describes their dysfunction as some kind of spiritual mediocrity, or in the word, lukewarmness. So much so that he is about to vomit them out of his mouth. You go, uh-oh, there it is. The Arminians are correct. You can lose your salvation. Because, by the way, that's a classic proof text right there. It's been used over and over and over again in certain strains of theology. You go, see, you can be born again and going to heaven. And, oops, you sinned and then you died at the wrong time. And now you're going to hell. He spews you out. About, I've been in those conversations and this is cited um, here's the balance of scripture, and then I'm going to show you that's an impossibility, but no genuine born-again Christian ever loses eternal salvation. That is simply impossible, and that is not true to this letter either. Jesus says, those whom I love, and that's not God so loved the world, so everyone's included. This is the covenant love between father and children. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He does not reprove and discipline the lost and the unconverted. This letter, as scathing as it is and, and the, the threat to spew them out of their mouth, is all about 
reproof and discipline. They're not going to lose their eternal salvation, but I will say this, they are in grave danger. What is the grave danger? There's something about the taste of the church, or more accurately, the temperature of the church in the palate of Jesus' mouth that is so detestable, he wants nothing of it. And so the idea here is that as a church body, they are close to being having their plug pulled. Just like Ephesus, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. Same idea. You are done as being a light and a witness for me. Call yourself whatever you want. The Lions Club, the Rotary Club, whatever you want. But don't call yourself the Church of the Living Christ. So he's spewing them out if they don't repent. But we also read in here in the final verses that individual Christians, while not in danger of losing their eternal salvation, heaven is a gift based on the finished work of Christ. And it's applied by grace alone through faith alone. And yet individual Christians that are born again are in grave danger of losing their reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And here it's described as the privileged to sit on the throne with Jesus and reign during what I believe to be the millennial reign of Christ here on earth. That there will be Christians that are denied reigning in this manner and he is warning the church you are potentially going to be shut down and individual Christians you are risking a full reward that's serious it's all because of this idea of lukewarmness now there's a chance if you've been a Christian for a while or you've read this or maybe you grew up in a youth ministry um, that you go, lukewarmness, I know what that's talking about. We should be on fire for Jesus. On a 24-7 passionate, I cry the most and shout the most and raise my hand the most in church when we sing. I'm on fire for Jesus. I witness to everything and everyone that I can find. I'm on fire for Jesus. And that's what this means. And then if you can't be on fire for Jesus, what Jesus is saying, then don't even say you're a Christian. In fact, deconvert and go away. And it's been taught like that throughout, who knows, last many decades by many, 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 many youth pastors at many Christian camps. And once again, I'm actually saying, and I have taught something of the like. However, this does not fit the letter in the context. Jesus would never condone and say, hey, this is a very suitable outcome. A lot of you should deconvert and deny me. So when he says cold or hot, both are acceptable and good options. And the idea is this, in the ancient world, um, piping hot elixir, something maybe of medicinal quality or something warming from the ins- on the insides or, or something so icy cold refreshing 
I want you to be either or or both and. I want some kind of intensity. This would go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to be salty salt and shiny light. I want intensity from you. There's no intensity. It's just mediocrity. And I'm not up for mediocrity. But we still don't know what the mediocrity is. We still don't know what the lukewarmness is in context of this church. So I want to offer you three evidences, um, three clues of what we, how we can put together the puzzle. What is this spiritual mediocrity, this lukewarmness? So clue number one is there is an absence of a firm gospel witness. I want you to notice in every single one of these letters, the introductory verse or verses is Jesus explaining himself in a manner that will either bring comfort to a struggling church or confrontation to a dysfunctional church. And in the letter to Laodicea, it's to confront dysfunction. And so you see this in every letter, that there are specific ways he introduces himself in his character from the Old Testament or Revelation chapter 1 or both and, because Revelation 1 sourced from the Old Testament. And Jesus is grabbing these metaphors, these pictures, these declarations, these visionary prophecies and saying, this is me. And here in this letter, he says, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. I'm the beginning of God's creation. When we look at these, what do they, they mean? The amen. If I just translate that, I am the absolute and true reliable. The amen. So be it. Absolute, true, and reliable. Not kind of, sort of, maybe, I think, I'm guessing. Absolute. Uh, secondly, the faithful and true witness. The key word there, witness, it's, where, it's the word martyr. Where we get the word martyr um, A martyr over time became the one that, that stood strong in the face of opposition and said, no, I have seen the risen Christ. I believe in Jesus. You better say you didn't or I will kill you. But I did. I kill you. And so that's what martyr came to mean. But before they actually lose their life, they're witnessing. And Jesus says, I followed it all the way through to the end. They said, take it back, you're not God's son. Take it back, you're not the judge of the universe. Take it back. And he said, I cannot lie. And they killed him. He did not capitulate, back down, deny, or hide his gospel under a basket. He was the light of the world and he let it shine. And then thirdly, the beginning of God's creation. And people go, there, the Jehovah's Witnesses are correct. He is a created being. He's the top of all created beings, but he's a created being. And that would be wrong. Why? Because beginning in the, the Greek is arche, and it means origin, source, or active cause. Follow? I am the beginning, the source, or active cause of God's creation. If we were to go back and read Colossians chapter 1, we can throw that up on the screen. I'm not going to exegete it right here, right now. But remember, the Laodiceans know the book of Colossians. They know this language where Jesus is taught as being God incarnate. And he is the source of all physical creation in the universe. He is also the source of the spiritual or heavenly realms. He created those as well. 
And then thirdly, he is the source, origin, and creator of the new creation that comes by the gospel and new birth. He's the source of all of God's works. He is the origin of all of God's works because he is God, the one who created with the words of his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, is God and the source of the gospel itself. We put these three things together and we see that he's the source and origin of all physical and spiritual realms, the beginning and source of the new creation. So what are these, these, these metaphors, these word pictures, these titles teaching us about the Laodicean church? Jesus is talking about himself as the faithful, true, reliable witness and source of the gospel, and they have let it die. This title is in opposition to the Laodiceans. They have fallen into witness and evangelistic disrepair. They are not being faithful to Christ, to his gospel, or their city. Why? Why? Clue number two tells us why. Because they thought they were awesome and doing enough and cool and acceptable. This is what they, and this is what I, I write in there. Um, I love this word. The presence of profound spiritual hubris. You go, that's kind of a fancy word. It means arrogance. And, and this kind of stuff that we say when we're arrogant comes out of their mouth. And notice the, the hubris in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. That as a church, they had so much going for them. So much success. So much, so much uh, resourcing that they said, we're awesome. We're the best church there is. We're killing it for Christ. And Jesus says, not realizing that you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They thought they had arrived. Fact is, they just had too much success, too many resources. They didn't, they didn't listen to the warnings of Scripture. In fact, Deuteronomy 8-7, Moses is preaching to the, 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 the Israelites. He's going to die soon. This is his final sermon in talking about when you go into the land and you find success and, and you're, you're eating from fields that you didn't plant, living in houses you didn't build. You're wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. Be careful, that's dangerous for your soul. Too much prosperity is dangerous for people, even God's people. And he says this, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. No, you didn't. God did that. But we are so temptable as people even as Christians, and yes, even as a church, when the budgets are full, when the parking lot is newly re repaved and the, 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 the roofs don't leak and, and the staff is amazing and everything is streamlined and communication is unbelievably slick and production is clean and top tier, that there's a kind of hubris that slowly leaks into a church so much to the point, and this is clue number three, so much to the point that Jesus is shut outside. Because why? 
we have so many things to make it all happen. We stopped praying. We stopped being hungry. We stopped being desperate. We stopped looking to Jesus saying, we're back in another pickle. If you don't show up, we're done. And Jesus goes, I love your dependency. Watch this next miracle. We get too much going for us. And we find ourselves, clue number three, Jesus is on the outside. Listen, verse 20, Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, wait a second. Jesus is the owner of everything. He's the source and origin of everything. He is the Lord and master and bridegroom of the church. He is the chief shepherd. He doesn't have to knock to get in. He's everywhere. He's in that church. So what is this talking about? It's talking about a spirit of self-sufficiency. There's no desperation. Older married couples, you remember when you were young and you lost your job and you're like, how in the world? We better, how are we going to make, make rent? We better pray. Begging the Lord. You were desperate. And you have stories of God's faithfulness. And one day, you're just killing it. You have so much. And a great retirement. You're like, eh, eh. There's enough other things that are, but there's no, no desperation left. And, and on that one area, you go, that's covered. I'm good. Spirit of self-sufficiency. And maybe even Hebrews comes in. And, I'll, and I could tell everyone else how I did it. As if it was just hard work and know-how and not the grace of God undergirding all of it. So this can come about where there's no longer a desperation or need. And so we put these together and we see a good idea of what this lukewarmness is and where, how it happens. This is the indictment against them. They're spiritually empty. They're not a faithful witness like Christ. They're not shining anymore. They're just blending in. They're acceptable. It's cool. They, um, they're self-deceived. They think that they are the model, perhaps. Uh, they think that they're so awesome they should start to export their styles and flavors and methodologies to other churches. There's this spiritual hubris coming out of them. And the reason why they're not fruitful, the reason why they're spiritually empty and self-deceived is because they, at the bottom of it all, are self-sufficient. This is spiritual mediocrity and lukewarmness. Self-sufficiency. Just like their own city. Isn't that interesting? Just like the city that says, we don't need help, we got it covered. We might applaud that and say, oh, the city, they were wealthy and they didn't, they didn't drain down uh, funds from the empire. How cool. They weren't victims. They rebuilt. Yeah, but we're not them. No matter how much God gives us as a church or as individuals, to walk very humbly, to look around at your life and the things that aren't right, the things that aren't going well, and go, yeah, I need Jesus just as much as I ever did. I might have my rent covered, but man, I'm desperate. We're desperate. We're not there yet. To stay very humble and very dependent. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
think about that. Oh, we could build a Tower of Babel. We could come together and build a great edifice, a great building without Jesus. Only to find out it's nothing. It's worthless. And when we go away, it goes away. It's gone. It's built on fluff. What Jesus is saying, we can't do anything of true spiritual value or lasting impact apart from intimacy with Jesus. So how do we go from a, per, a person that is like, or a church that is like the church at Laodicea? How do we go from being spiritually empty, unfruitful, self-deceived with spiritual hubris, and, and uh, being self-sufficient in and of ourselves, not dependent on Christ? How do we go from that to icy hot? Spiritually and evangelistically intense. How do we do that? It's right here in the text. Verse 18, I counseled you to buy from me. So we got to come to Jesus, right? And then there's three word pictures that are amazing and that they connect directly to the, that, that first century church, that city and that church. He says, gold refined by fire. Remember the banking industry. Fool's gold. Come to me for true gold. What is that? Throughout scripture, it is true inward holiness. Jesus is our righteousness. He can give it to us. Turn away from the world's fool's gold. Come to Jesus. The second one, um, so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you can clothe yourself. The white garments, we, were, we looked at this a couple weeks ago in, in chapter 18. The white garments are described as the righteous deeds of the saints. These are our works and activities and investments and ministries that are done out of faith and out of God's leading and direction. That these are, are looked upon instead of filthy rags of Isaiah. These are white garments. And this is in, in contradiction to the black wool industry of Laodicea. And then finally, um, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And we look at that and we go, the medical college and, and the uh, school of ophthalmology. And, and, but true spiritual sight so that we avoid the hubris and the self-deception. And we see with, with spiritual wisdom what is truly spiritual. Not as what is of the world and common knowledge and common wisdom of man. But what is God's ways? How does Jesus see Spiritual understanding and discernment. These are things that we desperately need as individual followers of Jesus and desperately need as a church. Amen? So here's, here's the, the fly in the ointment. If he just called us poor and pitiful and blind and naked, how do we buy this? He just told me I can't. He told me that I'm poor. And he says, come to me and buy gold. That scripture we read, Isaiah 55, it's free, but you got to come. To make it even more directly connected to this text, how do we get this, this spiritual, true gold holiness and, and these righteous deeds, and how do we get this when we're so broken? Hear him knock. Get up. Open the door and invite him back in. 
Invite him back into your life, every aspect of your life. Open all the closets, even the one with, with skeletons. Say, you're the Lord of all this. Let's sit down and have a talk. Let's have dinner together. Now, that's a metaphor. Anyone that tells you that it didn't really happen, he was in my living room, don't believe him. Don't. I'm sorry what you might say, oh, but I trust it. No, don't. And if it did, that's good for that person, but don't, don't follow that person. Okay? We're talking about, did you see this? Be zealous and repent. That, that's the same idea of, of change your mind. Be, be fervent. Get up. Open the door. Say, I've got need. I've locked you out. Please come in because I am broken. I'm not there yet. We're not there yet. We need Jesus. Tell him that you're pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. When you mess up, you're having a great day, and that little thing, you go, I shouldn't have said that thing. I hope they didn't catch it. Oh, I feel bad about it. Should I say something? Take that thing that's making me feel bad and say, Jesus, proof that I have not arrived. Can we just talk? I need you more. I keep saying stupid things. Looking at bad things. Keep Whatever it is, let those things lead you back to Christ. That's him knocking. Open the door. Come back into my life, Lord Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'm uh, rolling around in the Psalms. I told you that last Sunday at the end. I've only made it up to Psalm 34. And that was this morning, early, early morning, 5 a.m. And I came across this verse, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When we refuse to say we're brokenhearted and refuse to say we are crushed in spirit, because we're strong and we know how to bootstrap it, we know how to strengthen ourselves and be positive, we miss out on God's nearness. And it's as if we push him out because we say, no, we're awesome. We don't need him. And when all the data is trending in the right direction as a, as a church and we go, eh, we don't have to pray as much right now, that feels pretty good. Really? There should be times when we go, oh no. Temptation. Lord Jesus, even as you bless us, help us to not become arrogant. Here's the bottom line of the message today. Jesus expects his people to be spiritually and evangelistically intense. Hot and cold. Extremely hot and extremely cold. Not middle ground lukewarm. Jesus expects his people to be spiritually and evangelistically intense, but this intensity can only come through prayerful dependence on him. Can I ask you to just close your eyes where you're at? Ask yourself, am I spiritually and evangelistically intense? Hot and cold, refreshing and therapeutic. If not, or if in any area of your life you need him, be zealous and repent. Change your mind. That's what the word repentance means. Change your mind about how awesome you are, how wise you are, how self-sufficient I am. Let us be people that confess the sin of hubris. The sin of self-sufficiency. The sin of independence from Jesus. To have spiritual 
poverty of spirit that Jesus talked about in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mountain. That we would be the people that would that demonstrate dependence on Jesus daily by sitting quietly in his presence. Not time for more music, more podcasts, uh, someone else's devotional that they wrote, but, but me and Jesus in the scriptures. Quietly, meditatively, reading the scriptures, listening for the voice of Jesus. Saying, yes, Lord Jesus. Answer the door, let him back in, sit with him, dine with him. And as a church, be the kind of church that no matter what God does in, through, or around us, that we would continually be desperate for him. Deeply dependent on him. Continually, not only inviting him in, but continually giving him the keys to the front door. Say, you own this place. This thing is yours. You tell us what to do. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and even if many things are going well in our life, we want to confess that we are weak, needy, pitiful, poor in spirit, blind, and naked. But we come to you to buy gold refined in the fire true eternal wealth. We come to buy white clothing to cover our shame, acts of obedience done in faith. We come to you to buy balm to heal our eyes in order to, to allow us to see truths and spiritual realities. We hear you not only knocking on the door of our, our hearts, but the door of our church. And we say, Lord Jesus, have your place amongst us. Take your place as our chief shepherd, as our husband as our bridegroom lord jesus we don't just let you in we give you full authority and full control we pray this in jesus name together amen thank you for listening to journey church tucson sermon podcast we'd love to have you join us in person on sunday mornings at 10 a.m you can find out more about us at journeyefc.org